to another podcast for the Ordinary Saints podcast. We are, Richard and I are sitting in my office again and just reflecting on the last podcast that we recorded. And we're going to talk to you soon about some questions that we have unanswered from a little session we did with the community of Ordinary Saints. But before we get into that, uh, let's talk about being wrong, shall we, Richard? Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> when you talk in a sort of public setting and then you discover that you've said something wrong. I don't know about you, Sarah, but I don't enjoy that experience. <laughs> what experience are you speaking of, Richard? The experience of sharing something on a podcast, say our last episode, <laughs> and being wrong about it. Uh, this doesn't, to be fair, I am seldom wrong about things. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a big claim to make. No, I, I kid everyone. Um, look, we all make mistakes. Uh, when we're on the podcast, we are often talking quite off the cuff. And and I had this half-remembered thought. We were talking uh, in the last podcast around the word repentance. And I said, and it's something I actually heard in another person's sermon and then sort of recycled in my own uh, around the word repent, meaning to turn. And I sort of said, I, my understanding is that that's a translation of the Greek. But someone out there, one of our listeners who is far more qualified in biblical languages than I am, did say, Richard, that's Hebrew, not Greek. You're talking about the Hebrew word, uh, and you're touching on the wrong thing. So I just want to clear that up for everyone. In all humility, Mm. I was wrong. Yep. There's a lot of humility in this room anyway, I think. And so I just think it's a good chance for us to say to you all, when we are talking about stuff, you should know we don't go into a room and research the topic for a day before coming in often what we're doing is off the cuff so um feel free to google anything we say um (laughs) no it's just it's just a reminder that this is just a casual conversation we're having about a topic uh and yeah if if we say something that you don't agree with or that you think is a bit sus um give us an email and we'll talk about it in the next podcast oh and please feel free to disagree with us yes um we're talking out of uh, our experiences of life, the church, ministry, you name it. And it's our experience. And that's what we're sharing from. And I mean, the first thing I'll say is uh, I stand in a really particular place in the church. I've been shaped by all sorts of experiences. I hold some quite strong views on some things, but I also know... Really? I've never noticed. Yeah, but I also know <laughs> that those views have changed. And if I were to go back to, you know, meet myself 20 years ago as I was a young theological, younger theological student, I know I held some really hard positions, which I don't actually hold anymore. Mm. And I'd possibly, me now, would feel quite disappointed in me then. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's kind of the beauty of faith, right? Is that it is ever growing and changing and developing it's fluid you know and I know that might sound really wishy-washy to some people but it's just the reality of the human condition is that we grow and we learn and we change and we meant to change you know oh we are all definitely works in progress yeah I am certainly a work in progress me too and I think even just 10 years ago yeah I had drastically different ideas to the kind of ideas that I have now and I'm sure in 10 years I'll have very different ideas about some of the same topics again Um, But it's all part of the journey, and we're so glad that you're on that with us. Uh, But again, email in if you'd like to discuss something or um, pull us up on something even. We'd really like to hear your opinion. Make a correction. Yeah, do it. 
because that friend of the podcast did this last week. (laughs) At least you know now you'll get a mention. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So today we're talking a little bit about uh, some questions that we had come up from the community of Ordinary Saints. Now, at the moment, we're not meeting in person because we have a heck of a lot of COVID cases going around at the moment. I think yesterday there were over 20,000 again, just in, in, in New Zealand. Um, and Auckland is the hot spot, and that's where we meet. So we're doing stuff online. So we had a, a Google Meet session where people could, could could submit anonymous questions, and we could then discuss them. And I sort of said to the group, look, Richard and I will have a crack at some kind of response, and then others, you know, like chip in as you feel led. So we did get some really good questions. But there were a bunch that we didn't get around to answering because naturally the questions were pretty good, right? So we had to spend time on them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Some really thought-provoking questions for sure. Yeah. So we saved the questions that weren't answered and we said to the group, we're going to follow these up in the podcast. And then once we followed those up, we might actually release another podcast talking about the questions again that we did answer. The reason being, they were so good. So Richard, are you ready? Yeah, let's uh, let's hear what some of the leftover questions were. So some of the questions we didn't get around to responding to were quite mostly liturgical, this batch. Uh, mm. So this first one here, why do some places kneel for communion and others stand? And is there a significant difference liturgically? So there are lots of ways we can answer that question. But the first thing I'd want to say is that when it comes to anything we do in worship, whatever that style of worship is, is that often it's about preference. It's about this is the thing I do that helps me enter into my relationship with the divine in a more meaningful way. So in that sense, there isn't a right answer, right, of, of, well, this is how we do it or this is, because actually there's always been variety. So certainly in the early church, we have some evidence that people would typically stand to pray. uh, And in fact, Often that's because early church services weren't held in church buildings where there were kneelers and altar rails or any of these kind of things. So people typically stood to do it. And there is some tradition around yeah, people standing to pray particularly. But different things have come in at different times and different preferences because there is something uh, about kneeling in prayer that's significant too because there's something about humbling ourselves to kneel before another because again there's a whole tradition around that and what that symbolizes and that some people find that helpful and again I'm someone who's done both of those things there was a time I very much grew up in a church of of kneeling for communion and when I was 20 I changed parishes and that parish had a a tradition of standing and that's probably my preference my personal preference is to stand and in fact in recent times I've been visiting quite a few churches and noticing that and I'm now at a point where even if everyone kneels I will still stand because that's what feels right to me that's my preference I've identified it I know why I stand and so that's how I do it that's cool I've actually also heard the argument um, this might be a bit of a challenge to your last point Richard Mm. that what we do as a congregation in communion the postures that we use whether we're standing or kneeling or sitting or anything dancing whatever is that what's important is that we do it together that the postures we inhabit are ones that we do together as a unified group to symbolize the fact that we're the body of Christ and so we move together as the body of Christ what do you think about that because that's something I heard a few years ago I really like that idea 
But I would also say that idea is also a kind of preference, that that implies a particular kind of understanding of how we do worship and what we're symbolizing. And that doesn't necessarily fit with everyone either. So some church traditions will say it's like there's this phrase that gets talked about common prayer. And common prayer expresses this idea of everywhere you go and encounter worship, it's kind of the same. But I don't like that understanding of common prayer because I like diversity in worship. I like the commonality to be around the broad parts of the tradition, the fact that, yes, it does feel a particular way, but it might be expressed differently in a local context. So for me, that's what I celebrate and enjoy. I would rather we have a church where people have thought about, actually, this is why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it because this is just what everyone does here and I'm going to fit in. I want everyone to be in a church where we boldly enter into that relationship with the divine and we that's our priority. And if for you joining in with people as part of that expression and saying, I'm going to do it this way to because being part of this entire group, that's my preference, then wow, power to you, that's awesome. It's just not kind of how I feel. I My thing is there are reasons why I've made the choices I make and sometimes I might be in a community that does it a bit differently but I still want to be part of that group and worship alongside those people. I still have a sense of togetherness, but I also have a sense of I'm going to do, yeah, do it in the way that's most helpful for me. Yeah, that's that's a great response. And I think at the time, I remember I was challenged by this, right, when I first heard it. And I couldn't put my finger on why I was so challenged by it until I was in church, you know, the next week and noticed that there were a bunch of people in wheelchairs. Mm. And then I thought to myself, well, if there's the argument there that we're all moving together in unison as the body of Christ, then how is that possible for people who can't move or for people that can't move in the same way? And so for me, it's a little bit about accessibility, right? And I yeah. guess this is where liturgy intersects with other things, where we need to really think carefully about why we believe the things we believe. And this is why this is so important, is to really think carefully about these things. So if you're in a church where everyone stands up for a communion and you can't stand up for a period of time or you just can't stand up at all, then all of a sudden that is going to be a restricting thing for you in worship. Not only because all of a sudden you're having to think firstly about the fact that you're not standing and everyone else is mm. uh, and the kind of potentially the shame that comes along with that, right? Because, you know, not that people should feel shameful, but as someone who, you know, does struggle with, you know, chronic illness, there is a shame component, right? That, that oh, everyone else is doing it, so should I, and you feel guilty, right? So there's that side of things, which is, you know, unfortunate. But also, it's not good for the community, I don't think as well, to be in a position or a space where one way of being is normalized any than, than anything else, right? Mm. Because that's not good for the community's growth in terms of being understanding and embracing of diversity in the worship space. So I don't think it does anyone any favors to hold that view really strongly uh, when it comes to liturgy because it's just not real life. Yeah, and I think what you've just said touches on another little aspect for me which doesn't ever sit comfortably when people say well we should do it this way because this is what this it expresses this particular theology and that's really important but my thing is who gets to decide that is that what we all decide as a church and in some cases you probably make an argument that historically the church has said that or at least big chunks have but I don't ever believe it's ever been the entirety so again who gets to say what's right for everyone does that allow for diversity and, and, and free expression and for people, again, 
does that become something that invites people into a deeper experience of God or is it, is it a barrier? That's right. And I know that we've had some of these questions uh, as part of our diocesan synod as well. Uh, and if you don't know what a synod is, it's basically just a big governance <laughs> kind of meeting yeah. for a whole bunch of clergy and laity in the church. And we make decisions together. And there was a, uh, a motion or an idea that was put forward around uh, standing in communion. And I know our incredible uh, disability chaplain, uh, Vicky Terrell, the Reverend Vicky Terrell, brought this up and actually suggested that instead of using please stand, we use please stand or sit. And that might sound like a nothing statement, right? Because you're already standing or sitting. But it just reaffirms very directly the fact that there is no pressure for you to stand. That you, if you want to stand, you can stand. But if you don't want to stand or you can't stand, you, you're not obliged to. Uh, and I think that's something that even myself as a priest in settings where I'm taking a wedding or a funeral or even just any service, even I had to, you know, as someone who can't stand for long periods of time, mm. had to adjust that in terms of my speech just because I was so used to hearing it. So I would say something like, please stand and then kick myself internally because, you know, it's just not the kind of language that I want to be using because I know that it doesn't create a space that is welcoming and that, you know, destroys any barriers that people who can't stand up find in churches. So I really like that suggestion from Vicky. I think that was that was really good. And I'd like to see that being used more widely. Yeah, I'm so glad you bring that up because actually last year in church, this I was, I was presiding at a service and that exact thing happened. I said, please stand. I didn't think about it. It was a complete reflex because, again, that's my preference. My preference is that people stand at communion. Uh, and stand for the entire Eucharistic prayer. Like that's, again, my preference, so I own it. And I'd said this and I carried on, and at the end of the service, there was a woman in the wheelchair who completely took me to task. She said, you excluded me from that experience. That wasn't cool. Vicky has done great work in this area, and you need to go and read her book. And I and I took that challenge, and I did talk to Vicky, and I have read her book. Yay! <laughs> yeah, and because... Again, it's that thing of we have preferences and sometimes we need to evaluate them and go, is, is this the right thing? Well, I came up against a hard edge, right? And mm. went, oh, what I've always assumed and what I, I know is best for me is exclusionary and therefore I need to do something about it. Very cool that you were able to, you know, listen and, and hear that and, and observe your own ableism in that, in that context. Yeah. It's just another example of how we just continue to grow away. It's awesome. Okay, so that was kind of like a long-winded <laughs> uh, response to that question. Uh, and of course, we probably went in a direction we may not have thought we would have gone. So for another uh, question, there is, what is the difference between your soul and your spirit? Now, this one has me stumped. I'll be quite honest. You know, I will admit that in uh, when I was studying theology, I did write an essay And the question was, get this, Richard, who would write this as an essay question? What is the soul? So that was a big thing for me. And I remember many sleepless nights uh, pondering this question because there aren't many books on exactly what the soul is because I don't think anyone can define it. (laughs) No. It sounds like you're well-placed to answer this question, though. So so keep going. Because somehow I wrote, what was it? Must have been, what, two or 3,000 words on what the soul is. And actually, I linked it into uh, an issue um, 
or a topic of conversation, which was actually abortion. Now we're not going to go there on this top on this podcast, but it was just talking about at what point does someone obtain a soul, right? So this was the context into which uh, the the essay was posed, and I'm not going <laughs> to reveal the whole essay to you because it was a long time ago. I must have been 19. Um, but also, it doesn't answer this question: What's the difference between soul and spirit? And uh, I think like you, Richard, we did talk about this briefly just before. I'm going to say, I don't know. I don't know if there is a difference between spirit and soul. I think this might be an example of how language can be very limiting at times. But also, I can't think of any scriptural examples or anything where the two would be uh, different things. What do you reckon? Yeah, no, I certainly can't put my finger on a difference between the two I associate them as being more or less the same thing talking about something that's vital to each of us but I know the place that I've come to in my own thinking is the idea of the breath of God is really core to my belief around this sort of stuff Uh, and where that comes from again it comes from a debate I was arguing with someone some time ago um, they didn't like the expression of creator, redeemer, and giver of life. The reason they didn't like that is because they said, but creating and giving life are the same thing. And I say, no, I don't think they are. So if you take like a passage from Genesis, for example, where you have the creation of Adam and then the creation of Eve, and we know that their bodies are are made in particular ways, so there's an act of creation in the making of their body, but then giving of life is when God breathes, breathes life into them. So it's this breath of God that comes and inhabits that which has been created. And so for me, the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, that's the life-giving element of God. So I, I link all those things together. And I like that idea that something essential of the divine has come into this body, which I inhabit in this life. And at the end of this life, that essential thing goes back to God. Mm, yeah, I think that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture, and I think that's the way I think of it as well. But it's one of those things that, for me, feels like an intuited knowledge. It's not something that mm. I can necessarily write an essay on, yeah. <laughs> even though I really tried. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember that essay being very nebulous. I'll say, but I think yeah, this idea of spirit and soul uh, being that is it the is the Hebrew word uh, ruah. Is that right, for breath? After what I discussed at the beginning of this episode regarding my lack of knowledge of the Hebrew language, I'm not prepared to be drawn on this point. Okay, so maybe I'll just own that. I'm pretty sure it is, but hopefully the same person who uh, pulled you up last time will pull me up, Richard, if that's incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we've got another question, and I think it ties into the one that follows in a way. So let's start with the first one. In the creeds, it says something about believing in one baptism. What does that mean and why? So again, this is one of those things where I've, I've understood it different ways at different times in my life. So there is sort of a historical perspective on this one in terms of there was a, a theological question earlier in the church around how often do you need to get baptised? Um, if this is something that, like, and again, it comes to that deeper question of, well, what's happening when we're baptised? Where I found answers for this is the World Council of Churches many years ago at their Lima meeting basically produced a theological document on 
baptism uh, uh, and some other stuff too. But uh, the baptism part is the part I'm talking about. And it talked about the different theologies and how actually there's, there's quite a raft of different ideas. And sometimes it's baptism is about um, cleansing and renewal. Sometimes it's about admission to the church. Sometimes it's about dying to sin and being born again, raised to new life. It, they've all come out of lots of discussion over many centuries and different ideas of wrestling with it. But one of these questions was, again, if, if all of these things are happening in baptism, how often do we need to do it? Do, is it something that we go back and we do over and over again? Like every time, instead of making confession, uh, should we be having baptism every Sunday? So the idea of one baptism is actually no one time is it's done what it needs to do, and, and that doesn't disappear. But the grace that's bestowed on each of us through baptism is a one-time gift. And it's there and it endures. And actually there's nothing we can do to take it away again. So we don't need to do it again. And the other part is that I know that there was a point where I attended a church that said, well, you were baptized as a baby. That didn't really count. Uh, you need to be baptized again. And I didn't get baptized again, but I really wrestled with that for a long time. And certainly talking to my very Anglican parents about that, they were dismayed. What do you mean your baptism didn't count? When you're an infant, we did it with the best intentions, da da da. But again, because that's a different idea around what baptism is. And there are some parts of the church that say, no, it's we as the church that baptize and we choose it. It's not about individual choice, it's about what God does. God acts and we uh, engage with what God is already doing as action in the world. And there are some parts of the church that say, no, that personal decision and entering into it sort of wholeheartedly, as it were, is really critical to the process. So that's where I ran into those two competing ideas. But I know for me, ultimately, I landed back in the place of, I think, baptism of children is is a wonderful thing for the church. It's something that we do in our entirety. And yes, it counts. But that's me. Yeah, I, I agree. with. I, I've been on a similar journey, Richard, in thinking about all of this. And actually, I have a, a family member... <laughs> <laughs> who has written a book on baptism and why you should only be baptized once. So <laughs> oh, wow. there were times when I really struggled with this. I, you know, and, and I think I've landed back to that same place you have in the sense of that baptism ultimately is not just about you. Mm. <laughs> it's about what God's doing and it's about what the community of faith is doing. It's about what the body of, body of Christ is doing in and for and with you as well. And so, you know, my kids are baptized, uh, but, you know, seven, ten years ago, I probably wouldn't have known what to do. Uh, so it's one of those those things again. And, of course, when we say one baptism, we often say that in the creed, right, mm. uh, that we say, you know, we believe in one baptism. And so that is quite a strong statement and one that is really good to talk about and to, you know, wrestle with, I think. Because if we're all in a, in a church, especially, you know, an Anglican church, um, as, as our context is, and we all say it every week together, then we probably should talk about it, right? And what it yeah. means. Because it is easy to say these things and not actually explore the why. Uh, so if you are, you know, wrestling with this question in terms of, well, when do you get baptized? When, you know, what's the intention behind it? And, and what's happening? Uh, and is it only once? Or if I've been a baby, I've been baptized as a baby and I should should I be baptized again? Then read about it, you know, um, talk to some people that you know, uh, some ministers uh, or just some friends who've been through the same thing. I think it's a really worthwhile thing to wrestle with. Yeah. And I just to come back to that earlier point around preference, I, I never want to say 
to anyone who's chosen to be baptised again as an adult that that was wrong. I'd never say that because, again, if that's their journey and that's what's helped them connect more deeply into uh, into the church and into uh, their experience of God, then actually I don't see the harm there either. Now, it's not my theological position. Part of me would say, well, I, I think you could find other ways to do that, which doesn't require baptism. But if people feel really strongly about it, heck, I'm, not, I'm never going to say that's wrong. Uh, it's not part of my tradition, but I'm not going to say it's wrong. Yeah, that's a really good clarifying point. Uh, and of course, this question is the one that I think links to the next question, which is why do we say Holy Catholic Church if we are Anglican? Obviously, the person that wrote this question is Anglican. <laughs> <laughs> Although, can I just say, I think this person might already know the answer because in the question, or might know their own answer, right? In this question, they spelt Catholic with a little c. And of course, we should yeah. start there, right? Yeah. Catholic big C versus Catholic little c. Yeah. And that's the big difference, right? Yeah. So the way that I've un- come to understand uh, Catholic as a word with little c versus big C is that the little c uh, it basically means like universal, right? Or like global. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then big C means Catholic as in Catholic versus Anglican versus Presbyterian versus Baptist. Not that we're versing them against each other, right? (laughs) But, you know, (laughs) there's the capital C and then there's the the lowercase c. When we say Holy Catholic Church, we we often couple that, right, with another term, which is the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church as well, which is another loaded word. But these things don't just speak to one denomination or one expression of Christianity. They speak to something that is much bigger. It's a global Christianity, and it's one that's been around for a long time that we're all a part of, even if that takes shape in different ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So these words, you're right, there are actually four of them that go together. One Holy, Holy, Catholic, Catholic and apostolic. apostolic. It's funny they talk about the Catholic one, but the but it's funny because I remember um, when I was still quite young, I got hung up on that word too. I was like, but we're Anglicans, we're not Catholics. <laughs> and and I can remember that. And it, interestingly, the word apostolic in there never seemed to really draw my attention. <laughs> and you're right, because that's quite a strange word too. But these four words come up in the Nicene Creed, and it's a description of the church. And so there are four descriptors. The first is one. In some sense, we claim that the church is one. Mm. Interesting looking one. And so again, it's that thing of how do we understand the oneness of the church? Given that the church is so diverse, does does it mean unity? In some sense, we're, we're together in unity across all the different denominations? Or does it mean uniformity? We're all the same. Mm. Um, and, and different people of different eras have answered that question differently about the oneness of the church. Holy meaning that in some sense it's grace-filled, that, that God's presence is is held within it. Well, not contained within it, but held within it. Catholic, you've, you've nailed that one. I def- and someone said, yeah, it's not about different kinds of churches, it's about universal. So small c, universal, the universal church. So it's somehow, and universal in the sense of across time and place and history and all that stuff, so universal in a really universal sense of the yeah. word. <laughs> That's right. That's why universal is better than global, right? Yeah. Because it's, it, when we say global, it does seem to uh, reduce it to this time and place. 
But of course, we know as we we actually talked about what it is to be part of the communion of saints as well, right? And we use the word universal for that too. Yeah. And it is this idea of something that transcends both time and space. Yeah, yeah. And then that last word is apostolic, which again has had different interpretations and understandings. So some parts of the church get onto this thing of apostolic succession, and that's what it means. And the idea of apostolic succession is that. The apostles, the first followers of Jesus, basically started the church and they commissioned the next leaders of the church and then they passed it on. There's this beautiful chain of succession that goes right back to Jesus that's been expressed through church history. So that's the idea of apostolic succession. And by the laying of hands, right? Yeah, particularly. Mm. There's that particular action that goes along with that. But others would understand apostolic as meaning really in the tradition and in the spirit of the work that they carried out. Yeah, which was quite sacrificial in, in, in many cases, uh, if church tradition is, is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that idea of in the spirit of rather than necessary having this, this idea of ongoing continuity. Because again, it's the way these words get used. Sometimes apostolic can be a way of saying, well, we have apostolic succession, therefore we're kind of more real as a church mm. than you are because you began in somebody's basement and you're not really part of that tradition. But actually, that basement church might be just as good an expression of church, right? Because it might be carrying on in the apostolic tradition. Great. So, of course, a reminder, all of this is a matter of opinion, isn't it, Richard? Oh, definitely. (laughs) Um, And just a reminder, too, that if you uh, have listened to something we've said and, you know, you've got a different opinion or you're wrestling with something and you'd like to ask something else or want us to discuss something further, let us know. Email us in at the podcast, ordinarysaintspodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, talk to someone else um, that you know and ask their opinion. Um, I think part of the the great thing about the journey of faith is that we never stop learning and we never stop growing and we can learn so much from one another. As Richard pointed out in his brilliant story earlier uh, about standing in communion. So that's us for today. Uh, Next time or the time after, we will be uh, furthering with some more questions uh, and having another go at responding to them. But it's been awesome to be with you today, Richard, and all of you that are listening. And just remember, in theology, there are no bad questions, there are only convoluted answers. (laughs) 